Good morning, everyone. I trust that you all had a great Thanksgiving, right? Being, spending time counting our blessings, so much to be thankful for. And I know that uh, there's many in our congregation who are, um, are, are sick and still recovering or traveling this weekend. And uh, so we'll say hi to them on the live stream. And if you're joining uh, us this morning and you're out of town and you're visiting, we want to welcome you. Thank you for being with us and choosing to worship with us. And I pray that uh, uh, you'll have a good time and be blessed this morning. Well, as you know and as you can see uh, in front of me, today marks the first Sunday of Advent. And this is where we start to prepare our hearts for Christmas, right? To celebrate Christmas. And I want to encourage you now, if you don't know, Christmas is on a Sunday this year, okay? Christmas on a Sunday can go one of two ways. One, everyone stays at home and carries on their own traditions, and I'm just going to be here preaching to Christy and the kids. (laughs) Or, Our whole church family can come together and celebrate as a family together. And then we can go on and do our own uh, celebrations with our own immediate family. And I really can't think of a, what, what a better way to celebrate than to be at church on Christmas Day. So please, invite your friends, invite your family to come and celebrate Christmas with us this year. And if you did the math or if you looked at the calendar, you know that this opportunity is not going to come again until 2033. So, this is the year. Let's start celebrating Christmas by being together as a family. So determine in your hearts now to be with us on that day. Alright? So do you know where the first mention of Christmas is in the Bible? It's Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And you're thinking, wait Matt. My heading in my Bible says the fall. Right? Genesis 3 is where sin entered the world. Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve sinned, plummeting all of humanity into condemnation with them. But Genesis chapter 3 actually contains the first message of Christmas and the coming Redeemer. We're going to focus our time this morning on Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 21. And if you haven't found your way there already, I invite you to go to Genesis chapter 3. I'd like to read 21 verses uh, for us this morning. I know it's a longer section, but I want to read it all so we can get our minds focused on what we're going to be studying today. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 20. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You may be seated. Did you see it? Did you hear the Christmas story? Can you see the incarnation? Did you hear the bleeding sheep? Did you see the manger? Did you see the shepherds coming to visit? Well, my goal for this morning is that we'll see a clear picture of God's grace in the midst of human rebellion that will prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas. All right? I want you to see a clear picture of God's grace in the midst of human rebellion that will prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas. Not only on Christmas Day in five weeks from now, but Every day of the year. Alright? All throughout this passage, we see evidences of God's grace over and over again. That if we don't think about them deeply, we'll miss the whole point. We'll miss that God's grace is abundant. And I want you to see that this morning. So I've broken up this passage of scripture into three sections. You'll see them in your notes. We're going to explore the nature, the products, and the triumph over sin. Right, the nature, the products, and the triumph over sin. Let's start with verse 1, the nature of sin. So we, we read it already. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And we all know who that serpent is, right? Serpent is Satan. And from the get-go, Satan is the one who attacks the word of God. And so that's point A in your notes. Sin, in its nature, undermines the word of God. That is what Satan does. He's a liar. He always has been a liar. He spreads lies. He is the king of lies. If he quotes scripture, he's quoting it in the wrong way. If he quotes scripture, he only quotes half of it. If he quotes scripture, he conveniently forgets the context of that scripture. He lies about what God says. And he says in that verse, you can't eat from any tree of the garden. But if you look just a little bit further up in Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17, what did God tell Adam and Eve? Well, in verse 16, it says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God did not say, you may not eat from any tree. No, he didn't say that. He said, you may eat freely from all the trees but one. And we'll see, right? We'll see what, how the woman responded in chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Well, from the fruit, she said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. The woman here says another partial truth based on what God has said. And she is right, right? That God says that you may eat of the trees. But she's incorrect when she says that God said you shall not touch it, right? There's nothing about touching in chapter 2. And another observation if you look at chapter 2, is God's offer of freedom. If you look at chapter 2, it's, it's about freedom, right? You can do all of these things. You can do anything here, but just this one thing. And the woman contorts God's words and turns them into bondage. He takes, she takes God's word and, 
and doesn't look at the freedom, but turns them into bondage, right? And that's sometimes what we do with our sin, right? You know, I'm not allowed to do these things over here. You know, sometimes I wish I could do these things over here, but I'm not allowed to. You know, we focus and we give weight upon the prohibitions and the restrictions as opposed to the freedoms and liberty that God now gives us in Christ. That's what sin does. That's what sin did to Eve. Excuse me. If you look at, if you look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows the day of you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan here is not so much questioning God anymore. He's simply calling God a liar. Right? Satan is the one, though, who lies to the woman. So another example of sin's nature, point B, is that sin thrives with complacency. Sin thrives with complacency. The woman just stands around and entertains Satan instead of fleeing from Satan. She stands around and listens to what he has to say, right? Oh, maybe, you know, this serpent has a point. You know, all throughout scripture, as, you, as you're thinking about this now, what are we told to do in the midst of temptation? Flee. Run away. Flee from sin. Do not have sin even named among you. Put off sin. Put on righteousness. But what did Eve do? Eve entertained it. And we cannot entertain sin for one second. Listen to Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stand in the path of sinners. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So you start walking around the wicked, then you stop, and then you stand. And then you sit down for a while, hear what they have to say. But, what does verse 2 says? His delight, the one who's blessed, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And that's the one who will be blessed. The psalmist doesn't say, you know, the blessed man is the one who delights in going to church. You know, the blessed one is the one who comes and listens to sermons and goes on his way and forgets everything he's ever heard. It doesn't say his delight is the one who has his quiet time and forgets it all by 11 in the morning. No. He said the blessed one is the one who meditates on his word day and night and his delight is in that meditation. Right? The blessed one knows what God says. The blessed one, he believes God in his heart and he finds joy, not restriction, but he finds joy because of God's word. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. That's what God tells us. And looking down at uh, chapter 3 verse 6, look what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice, verse 6, God's grace. God's grace. So the woman ate, and God did not strike her dead immediately. That's grace. She ate and violated a holy God who created her, and who said, once you eat of it, you will die. But God was patient. That is the grace of God. And by nature, sin causes us to look at our own desires and to move our thoughts away from God's desires. And that's exactly what Eve did here. This is point C in your notes. Sin ignores God's desires. Sin ignores God's desires. Right? The woman listened to Satan, entertained him, looked at the tree, thought about it, and picked what she wanted rather than what God wanted. She ignored God's desires. And it doesn't take a whole lot of worldly things to shift our own focus away sometimes, right? And that's exactly what, e what happened to Eve, right? And let me just talk a little bit about our desires, our own personal desires. You know, it, it's okay for our desires to influence uh, the direction of our lives, right? But it comes with a caveat. I say that with a caveat. 
So it's okay for our desires to be influencing our decisions in our lives if, big if here, if they're rooted in the word of God. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can choose to make decisions based on what you want, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And it's very biblical to do that. Just as long as they're in line with what the Lord has already required of you. But for Eve, that wasn't the case, right? The God of this world tempts us with what looks good to our own flesh. And we often believe that lie that Satan tells us. And our desires then depart from what God has said will actually bring you true happiness, right? And that's the nature of every sin in our life. We believe Satan rather than believing what God said. Here's point D. Sin believes Satan and not God. Sin believes Satan and not God. When we sin, when we sin, we're saying... That we believe that our sin will ultimately give us more happiness and more joy than whatever God has for us. And the truth is that apart from God, the results don't ever turn out like we hope. Right? The book of Proverbs describes sin like playing with fire in your lap. Scripture speaks of sin like a burden placed upon your shoulders, like a lion waiting to devour, like a poison that tastes sweet at first but then sits bitter in the stomach. Sin is like a rock in your path that will make you stumble, like leaven in a lump of dough that will corrupt the whole thing, like chains and shackles holding you prisoner. Sin is a brutal slave master. So believe God. And not Satan. And to review, sin in its nature undermines God's word. It thrives with complacency. It ignores God's desires and believes Satan over God. In our next point, we'll examine the products of sin. We've seen the nature of sin. Now we'll see the products or the results or the outcomes of sin in verses 17, 7 through 19. Excuse me. <clears throat> we share a lot in our family. My voice this morning is uh, thanks to my daughter. <clears throat> we share a lot of germs in our family too. <clears throat> but after the man and the woman sin, we see there's three specific consequences, three specific products of sin. I'll give them to you for your notes. It's shame, blame shifting, and punishment. Those are the, the results of sin. Shame, blame shifting, and punishment. Let's look at the first one, shame. And before we understand what exactly the, the shame that sin brings, you have to realize the context of Genesis chapter 3. Go up again to Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Okay? There was no sin in the world and there was no reason to be ashamed even while they were naked. And there was no reason to feel humiliated or feel distressed. Or up until this point, their consciousnesses had never had to shame them into anything. So look at verse 7 and 8 of chapter 3. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So you see shame and embarrassment and humiliation accompanying sin. And yes, while, while, while shame is a result of the fall, it can also, for believers, drive us into further holiness, again, for those who know the Lord. Right? When, feel, when sin doesn't feel good, that's a good thing. That, the guilt, that guilty feeling that you get is God's way of letting you know that you've chosen the wrong path. That is the grace of God. Like the psalmist says, we must expose sin. You know, I'd encourage you, you know, have a, have a trusted friend or two who, you, who know you, who love you, and who you can confess your sins to, 
right? Say to them, you know, I'm ashamed of this. You know, can you help me? Can you pray for me? Can you help me realize that Christ's blood has covered me and I must walk in joy now? Can you help me fight temptation? Expose the sin with the light. Do not hide like Adam and Eve did to try to cover up and try to just look good on the outside. You know, many times you might come come to church and you've, you know, ironed your shirt or put on clean clothes and as the weeks progress, maybe you put on your Christmas sweater. You know, maybe you're here and you, you look around and you think, man, you know, I've got it all together. I've got everything together. I look good. But if people only knew what happened between you and your wife on the way to church or how you yelled at the kids this morning, you look around and see people who might look like they've got it all together, like nothing is wrong. Maybe you've been tempted to think that way, that nobody struggles with sin and temptation. That's a dangerous game to play. We cannot act like there's nothing wrong with that. We can't do that. See, Church of the Canyons is more, Church of the Canyons is more than looking like a country club or maybe some red carpet event. We should look like a hospital. A hospital who, yes, we're, we, we have the cure, right? We have the great physician with us, right? There's no use in covering up sin. It might work for a short while, but the Lord knows what's going on in your heart. With your finger in Genesis chapter 3, turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, 1 through 7. Let's see what the psalmist has to say about sin. This is uh, written by David, King David. And it was written right after he sinned with Bathsheba. After he had committed murder. After he had committed adultery. After he had been an unfaithful king. Look at verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away, as with a fever heat of summer." Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time where you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. See, Adam and Eve, if you were to confess, the trees would not be your hiding place. COC, the trees cannot be our hiding place. The rock of ages is our hiding place. He surrounds us with songs of deliverance, songs of joy uh, that result from being delivered. No need to live a life of, uh, that's defeated because we have Jesus. And so what's my point? Stop trying to cover ourselves up with things that do not cover us up. Right? Confess your sin, expose it, and you will be covered in an eternal way by God. And if you're struggling uh, at this point to connect the dots on like, what does this have to do with Christmas at all, let me, let me remind you of our goal. Right? The goal here is to see the grace of God in Genesis chapter 3 so that you can properly prepare to celebrate Christmas, not only on December 25th, but every day of the year. So go back to Genesis chapter 3, and I'll point out a couple more evidences of God's grace in that chapter. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Special here. The first thing you notice is the name. There's a name change in the narrative. Right? In your Bible, is, all, is the word Lord all caps? All caps and little? Right? That's the name Yahweh God. That's God's relational name. 
And in the account of the woman and the serpent, uh, what name do they use for God? They say God Elohim, right? That's creator God. It's more of a distant name. You know, Satan says, indeed, has Elohim said? And the woman replies, Elohim said this. And then Satan again in verse 5 says, Elohim knows. And the rest of the narrative, it says Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord God. His personal covenant-keeping, relational, sovereign God. His name, that is our God. And that's no small matter. And you ought to notice it. Put an asterisk next to it. Even in the midst of sin, God is relational. Even in the midst of sin, God is relational. That's another example of of grace and mercy. If you look down again, he's walking about the garden. He did not choose to scorch the garden with fire and, and everything else that was in it. You know, he could have rained down lightning bolts upon their heads the moment they sinned. But he walked. He walked amongst the garden. One commentator says, The gardener, that's capital G, gardener, the gardener has not abandoned his garden. The proof of love is the unwillingness to abandon the object of love even when love fails to achieve its desired end. Let me say that again. The proof of love is the unwillingness to abandon the object of love even when love fails to achieve its desired end. What a God. The creator God has been violated. He walks around his creation. He's patient from the very beginning. God did not abandon Adam and Eve. And so here's the application for us this morning. If you're involved in some sort of sin that has been covered up, I want you to know that there's no abandonment of you yet. Hebrews is very clear, and there's warning passages all throughout Scripture that the Lord is long-suffering, But we must not test him because judgment is coming. For those who are exposed to the truth, but they're still in sin, one day, one day, he will give them over to that sin. That's what Romans tells us. But you know what? If you're living in sin right now, I can tell you that God has not abandoned you. God has not given you over yet. And how do I know that? Well, you're here listening to a message about the sovereign creator's grace that covers your sin if you would repent. So God, in Genesis 3, did not abandon Adam and Eve, and he has not abandoned you. Jesus Christ himself says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What a comfort. What a comfort that is. Genesis 3, 9 and 10. We'll see another, another example of grace in the midst of sin. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. See, God, he draws man out with a question. He doesn't immediately pronounce a curse upon him. No, he leads Adam toward his confession of sin. Right? Confession of sin is the desired response after being exposed to God's word. That's grace. Next, we're going to see the second product of sin, and it's blame shifting. Blame shifting. To review, we first saw that sin produces shame, and now the second product of sin is blame shifting. Look at verses 11 and, uh, through 13. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the, from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. See, Adam says, The woman made me do it. See, notice how quick Adam is to blame Eve, his wife, when they're caught in sin. And really, he's not, he's not blaming Eve. He's really blaming God himself. And really, sometimes we can blame those whom we love when we're caught in sin. You know, as a dad, you know, when I took the job 
part of my job description is to be a private investigator. You know, there are times where I need to wade through tears and emotions to get to the bottom of why there's chaos and strife. And, uh, you know, most often than not, when I ask what happened, blame starts to fly. Right? Blame is put on anyone or anything else that they could think of. You know, it was my sister, she did, or it was my brother, he did, or I get blamed. Even the dog gets blamed. I've heard it all. Well, I get to experience that because that's exactly what our grandparents did in the garden. Adam and Eve shifted all the blame. When we're caught in our sins, sometimes we're quick to blame other people, even those we love. And sometimes we blame people that we don't love, right? We blame things that uh, we should hate, and we sometimes blame the world for our sin. We blame Satan for our sin, and you know what? He will be punished, right, for leading you into sin, but you'll be punished too if you don't repent. You know, we'll see later on that everybody associated with sin somehow will be punished. We have to understand, Matt Davis's sin is not society's fault. It's my own It's not the fault of what's shown on television. It's my fault. When I sin, it's not difficult people who don't drive well. No, it's my fault. No one else gets the blame for when I sin. It's my sin. And it's the same for you. And we we do need to recognize, though, that Satan is a deceiver, perhaps more than we give him credit for. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity, listen, purity of the devotion to Christ. So if you're in this room and you are saved, your desire must be for the purity in your devotion to Christ. See, the devil, he doesn't walk around in red spandex and a pitchfork. He's much craftier than that. And we must guard our hearts. And so in addition to sin bringing shame and sin bringing blame shifting, the third product of sin is punishment. Punishment, letter C. Look at verse 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now God asked Adam and Eve, to, to uh, questions, right? Questions to draw out the confession. But he didn't ask Satan anything. No. He says, you're cursed. You're cursed. In verse 14, the words, dust will you eat, it signifies defeat. You will be defeated. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. And here it is. Verse 15 is the first mention of our Savior, the Messiah, Christ. In scripture. So Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Genesis 3.15 is the first place that we see the promise of a savior. We see signs of Christmas here in the beginning. But Genesis 3, right? It's, it's very broad. And we need God to narrow it down for us. Who could it be this seed? And so as you read the Bible, God does, God does just that. He narrows it down for us. At that time, it was, and at this time, if you notice too, Eve doesn't even have a name yet. But you know it's the woman. The woman. The seed's going to come from a woman. That means that someone from her line would be the seed. Everybody's hopes were high. And, and they, when they found out that Eve was pregnant, Right? Well, maybe it's going to be Cain. Maybe he's the seed. How about Abel? Well, one was a murderer and one got murdered. So it can't be them. Well, what about Seth, the next son? Right? His, ma- his name means set in place of, after all. But it wasn't him. And if you look at the genealogy in chapter 5, everyone is on the lookout for this seed. But there's a big problem. There's a big, big problem. Turn over to chapter 5, Genesis 5. There's a genealogy going through the, the line. 
who, you know, he's, he's the, the father of so-and-so and all, all down the line. But there's, there's a reprise in this chapter. Repeated words. And when you study the scripture, repeated words matter. Look at the, uh, verse 5. He lived 30 years and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. And on and on, the whole chapter. He died, he died, he died. And it appears that the serpent is winning. Because death now ruled creation. So where will this seed come? Where will this Messiah come? By Genesis 6, the world became so evil that God flooded the entire earth. And the the, the entire family tree of civilization got narrowed down to just one branch. That's Noah and his three sons. And of those three sons, Shem. Shem is noted for having a relationship with Yahweh. You see that in Genesis 9, 26. But we're still all on the lookout for who this seed could be. And then... In a major turn of events in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2, God promises this man from the land of Ur that he will make his name great. And who is that? That's Abraham. Abraham. All the world would be blessed through Abraham. You see that in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 and Galatians 3.16. They interpret that verse as being fulfilled in the Messiah. And so we have to follow this seed, this promised seed even further. Genesis chapter 17 through 19, Genesis 17, 19 says it's through Abraham's son Isaac that God would establish his covenant and institute his blessings. And then by Genesis chapter 25, we see that it's through Jacob that the Messiah would come. Not Ishmael, but the son of promise, Jacob. And in Numbers 24, 17, stresses now that this ruler, this scepter, will come by a dis- the, the descent of Jacob, who will crush the enemy and have dominion. And of course, we know that Jacob had 12 sons. And you can read the story of God's uh, faithfulness of preserving him and, uh, through a famine. You see Joseph's famous line, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And out of those 12 tribes in Genesis 49, that it would be, we see that it would be Judah. Judah is where the king would come. One who held the scepter, right? The one who would rule with peace. The one whom all the nations would give their obedience. That's the picture of the Messiah in his his millennial reign. See, scripture though, he doesn't leave us there. So within this tribe of Judah, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God's promise is to King David. That one of his descendants will have an everlasting dynasty. He would rule. And he and his rule would be eternal. If you want to study that more, go look at Psalm chapter 89. Psalm 89 expands on that promise. And so we see that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. He will be a king in the line of, of David, Jeremiah 23 says. He'll be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 says. He'll be worshipped by shepherds. And just in case you thought, well, that could be anyone, Isaiah 7, 14 says he'll be born of a virgin. Not the most common way to be born. See, God will supernaturally bring about the birth of the Messiah. And there are more prophecies. He'll be honored by great kings. He will be alive when there's a great slaughter of children. There'll be a flight to Egypt. A forerunner will prepare the way for him. John the Baptist, right, who comes in the spirit of Elijah. He'll be declared the son of God. He'll have a Galilean ministry. He'll speak in parables. And during his time, the the temple will become a marketplace instead of a house of prayer. He'll be a prophet. The blind, the deaf, the lame, they'll all be healed by this Messiah. He'll be meek and mild. He'll He'll be ministering to Gentiles. He'll bind up the brokenhearted. He'll intercede for people and give rest to their souls. He'll be rejected by the Jewish people. He'll have a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He'll enter the temple with authority. People will not believe him. His sheep will be scattered. He'll be betrayed by a close friend for only 30 pieces of silver. And it can only be one person. It can only be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is 
is the seed promised in Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of Satan, who will defeat Satan and death forever. And so far in Genesis, God gives commands and humans listen to Satan rather than trusting God. And now in the middle of the punishment, in the middle of the cursing, God amazingly, wondrously promises a seed, not only to save Adam and Eve, but, uh, but to, for us as well, and who will crush Satan. That is the God of grace. That is undeserved favor. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 30. This is where the angel appears to Mary, right? The angel said, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. He will bruise the head of Satan and it'll be forever. Go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. This is the genealogy of, of Jesus. Look at verse 23. This is where Luke traces... Uh, Jesus' heritage all the way back. And you see, right, in this uh, verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and it goes on and on. The son of, the son of, all the way, drop down to 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus Christ is the seed, and it can only be him. Revelation chapter 21 and 2 speaks of Jesus defeating Satan. Right? Then I saw an angel of the, of, the, uh, of the Lord coming down from heaven, holding the keys to the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. Where have you heard that serpent before? The garden. He bound him for a thousand years. In that same chapter of uh, Revelation 20 and verse 10, it says, After a thousand years, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan will be punished by that seed, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. So the Bible ends with a look into the future of that happening. But it all begins in Genesis chapter 3 with the promise of that seed. And so not only is there punishment for Satan, but there's also consequences for the man and the woman though. Right? We see this punishment back in Genesis 3.16. So the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. See, the pain of childbirth, yes, while very painful, is not what was totally deserved. What was deserved was eternal hell. While, yes, childbirth is painful, it is by the grace of God that women are blessed by the children that come forth from their womb. And we see more and more of this grace from our compassionate God as you read, right? John chapter 16, 21 says, and Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain for her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born. And so part of the curse for the woman also is to desire control for the family, This was the natural consequence of disobeying God in what he said. She didn't obey God and she listened to Satan. Now natural consequence of that is that she will not obey regularly the authority that which God has placed over her, which was the man. But again, God's grace is present. God gives us scriptures, in scriptures, ways for men and women, husbands and wives, to fulfill their roles and to let peace reign in the house. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And so the man is also punished, verses 17 through 19. He gets three verses. 
The specific sins are detailed in the first part of 17. It says, Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. So God tells him that the sin was that you were led by your wife. You've eaten from the tree. And God says in the second part of 17 through 19, Curses the ground because of you. Notice that God doesn't curse the man or the woman. He cursed Satan directly. God doesn't curse the man or the woman. He cursed the ground, right? Curse the ground because you toil uh, and you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken and you are dust and to dust you shall return. So notice this. Work wasn't the curse, Sorry for those who are struggling at their jobs uh, and, and want to blame Adam and Eve for your job. Uh, it wasn't the curse, right? There was work before the fall. See, working for food was the curse. Having to earn your living and the supply of food was the, was the curse. Physical death was also the curse. In verse 19b, we see that the second part that we're told later on in Scripture, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. So God doesn't lie when he says that he will punish sin. However, he has shown his, in his compassionate and merciful nature that he, will, he, he refuses to allow sin to be the end of the story. It's not going to happen. In the end, all those who are his will be victorious over sin. And that brings us to our third point, the triumph over sin. The triumph over sin. We've looked at the nature of sin. We've looked at three products of sin. And now we see the triumph over sin. Verse 20 and 21. Look at verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all the living. You know, Christy and I, didn't, we didn't name our children with a whole lot of thought um, into the meaning of their names. But in antiquity, there's, there was so much to a name in the Hebrew language. Adam calls his wife Eve, and it signifies life. And Adam here believes now what God has said to Satan. All right, when God said that a seed will come, Adam now in verse 20 shows that he believes that a seed will come. Part of the sin was that Adam did not believe God. He was allowed to be led by his wife to trust in Satan. And so here, in verse 20, Adam proves he believes what God said. Look at verse 21. Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. You see, an animal is killed now to cover Adam and Eve's shame. This points to Jesus Christ. The Passover lamb points to Jesus Christ. All of the prophecies, all of the Levitical sacrifices point to Christ. Anytime blood is shed for sin, it points to Jesus Christ. And it starts here in Genesis chapter 3. It points to the one who would come on Christmas Day. So for God to cover your shame is infinitely greater than you attempting to cover up your own guilt with the leaves of trees. And I want to contrast some things just, just to cement this in our mind. I want to contrast verses 7 and 8 with those who have faith in Christ. Let me read verse 7 and 8 for you again. The eyes of them were both opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So let's contrast that shame and that embarrassment. That activated conscience that says, you have sinned. And now contrast that with the Christian life. Right? Adam and Eve, they're the ones who sewed uh, 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 loin coverings with leaves as, as some feeble attempt to, to cover up. But in the Christian life, God has done all the work. Adam and Eve, they were covered with dead leaves. But if you believe, you're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Adam and Eve had their eyes opened, causing shame. But 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is so clear that your eyes, the Christian's eyes, have been opened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve's concealment didn't work. But Psalm 32, 5 says, confession leads to forgiveness. Concealment doesn't work, but confession does because God has made it that way. Right? Adam and Eve bought into a lie that led to a curse. And if you've believed the truth, that now leads to life. Adam and Eve were naked and they were covered instantly. But Jesus Christ, he was stripped and mocked by a mob and hung on a cross to be mocked even more for your sake. Christmas is about the birth of Christ. And so who would it be that would die for sin? Genesis 3 tells us the promise seed. And so our capacity to experience joy this Christmas season, and the reason I believe Christmas should be celebrated every other day of the year, is directly related to how you view Genesis chapter 3. And so where are you in Genesis chapter 3? Are you living in verses 7 and 8? Living a life of shame and regret because of your sin? Or are you living in verses 20 and 21, believing and trusting in what God said? If you believe, that allows him to cover your sin and your shame. So where do you live? There's no middle ground. You live your life in one of those two places. Where is it? So I hope that the reason that you smile and the reason that you sing loud and the reason that you give gifts and do everything you do this Christmas season is because you understand the depth of your sin and what you've been saved from. That should put a smile on your face and a smile in your heart, right? Misery over sin, it's a good thing. It's a good starting place, but it's not where the Christian life is lived. It's a battle with sin daily, yes, But you're walking in joy and newness of life because of Christ. That's the Christian life. That's what it is. And I hope that for all of us during this season, yes, this season and beyond, but I hope that everything that we see in the weeks to come leads us to think upon that truth. Pray with me. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is your world and you came to save it and you came to redeem it and to redeem us. So Lord, I'm, I'm begging you for everyone in this room that we can feel joy because we know that our sin has been forgiven. And I plead with you to save those that who have not repented and turned to you. I'm asking Lord that you would make this the best Christmas season that we could ever experience because we think deeply about those truths. And I pray for the next year that it would be the best and that, that we, this would only increase our thinking and our longing to be with you, our Savior, our King, the promise.